Welcome, listeners. You are listening to the first episode of the Cranky Coders podcast. In this episode, your hosts Peter and Griffin will look at virtual reality, AAA gaming, IDEs versus text space environments, and hackathons. If you have questions, comments, or feedback, please email them to crankycoders at gmail.com. We will have a website up soon so that you can submit these questions or feedback there. And with that, let's get things started. Welcome to the Cranky Coders podcast. Hello. I'm, uh, I'm here with Peter, um, and welcome to the first episode. So I'm playing on this being like an every other week thing, and we're just going to be sitting down here, and we're going to be talking gaming, development, college life, whatever we feel like. So uh, Peter, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Peter. I worked for the government once. And yeah, that's all you really need to know about him. Um, I'm Griffin. I uh, do uh, web development, web design. I'm a junior at ASU, and Peter will refuse to say that he's a junior at ASU too, I guess. I I am indeed a junior at ASU. Okay, there you go. And um, I, uh, if you want to check me out, you can uh, hit me up at griffinweeble.com. So, um, let's get started. So, the first thing uh, we're going to be talking about today is um, about technology developments and uh, virtual reality. So the question is if it's uh, worth keeping an eye on and uh, what kind of technology is uh, best for the consumer. And uh, I've actually had a personal experience with virtual reality. I was at the uh, mall the other day and they had a Oculus Rift with those uh, touch controls. Have you seen those touch controls yet, Peter? Oh, yeah. Um well, most of my understanding of VR comes from like the sort of the controllers that you hold. They're kind of like I don't know batons or something, kind of like right. what they tried to do for the PlayStation Four. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know anything about touch controls, honestly. Yeah. So um, the cool part about these is they actually like really fit in your hand, and they're really cool because like. They have like different grips around the controller where like a normal person when you grip like when you're um, when you're trying to grip something like this way or when you're trying to point somewhere, they it's just really intuitive and it's really awesome to use. And so I got to play this uh, game where you scale a mountain, and I was just really scared. Like I was just shaking like on the floor, and and the woman was like trying to touch me, saying like Are you okay? Are you okay? I'm like Yes. Yes, I'm fine. Um, but no, it's 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 really impressive. Um, the only other time I used VR was a uh, cardboard, uh, those little Google cardboard. Things. Oh yeah, and you got like the Star Wars skin things. Those are pretty fun, right? And those are cool in themselves. But the problem is they don't give a lot of depth, and you don't feel like you're really there. And the cool part about these games that I played is you really do feel like you're there. Sure. So. One big question about VR that I've had and that I've heard people ask is, so motion controls were sort of the first foray of a lot of game developers into virtual reality. But 
virtual or motion controls like with the Wii or with the Kinect, they kind of flopped. People weren't really into them. It was hard to develop games for them. So what do you think sets VR, uh, headset-based VR and more visual VR apart from the motion control-based VR? So I feel like they're actually one the same, but the really big challenge for VR at this point is just having the graphical prowess for uh, virtual reality because in order to play VR games, you have to have these ma- these massive, I shouldn't say massive, but powerful computers in order to play them. Like, none of the consoles playing these days, but I feel that um, the motion controls work perfectly fine, and I feel they even work even better than the Wii controllers. It's just a matter of, like, whether or not you can get them uh, whether or not you can get the game running in order to be using them. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I, uh, yeah. Go for Are it. going to say? No? Okay. Um, but I just feel that virtual reality is there. The problem for me, personally, this is the biggest problem. Every single game I've looked at on the Steam store in, for virtual reality has two problems. Well, they either have one or two problems. The first problem they could have is they're way too expensive. Some of the decent games out there cost like 30, 40 bucks to play. Well, it's not as much of a triple A title. They're not triple A titles with themselves because all you do in these 30, 40 dollar games is maybe you take a walk around the park or you fly a spaceship, but there's no there's no plot, there's no substance there's no substance that like keeps you in the game. So um, that's the first problem. The second problem is the Steam store is littered with these bunch of like, I, I even hate to call them demos, but just like little like shoehorns to say, oh, we made a little VR thing. Just try it out. It's only 10 bucks, but it's worthless. So I don't feel like there's a game out there for me or for anyone that's like, this is why you need VR. So, actually, I kind of disagree. I feel like there's a couple of really, really strong games out there right now. Oh, yeah? Um, a recent release... Um, so, I don't know if you ever played uh, Dr. Lengiskov, the uh, the Tiger and the Horribly Cursed Emerald, but that yes, was I by... Play a, that one. Yeah, um, that was uh, by a studio called Crows, Crows, Crows. And um, they uh, recently teamed up with Justin Roiland, who I'm sure you know is a writer from yep. Rick and Morty. Uh, I assume he, I don't really know what position he plays there, but I know he's like super significant there. Um, But they made a game called Accounting, which is a free game on Steam, which is really good because that's always, you know, free games are always good. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it's just a really funny, really well-written and really strange foray into the virtual reality universe. Um, I think it's, you know, it's a super enjoyable time. But the question I know, is, is uh, there any substance in the game that like keeps you there and keeps you saying, oh, this is why I love this VR device? Well, it's a short game. Okay. So it's not like it's the most immersive. It's not like it's, you know, super intense and you're not going to be playing it for hours on end. Okay. But it's, it's kind of a virtual reality game about virtual reality, which is, you know, something I always enjoy, that sort of meta approach to storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I don't know. You kind of just have to play it for yourself. So um, you're saying it's a it's a really good free demo into virtual reality to see like what it offers. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, and I know Valve has been making, or a while ago, made a virtual reality demo that was, you know, just that, a demo, but it seemed pretty impressive to me. There was a lot of um, 3D manipulation of objects into their three-dimensional schematics, um, which is a really cool idea, you know, for application of VR outside of gaming. Um, yeah, um, there was also this other one. I'm trying to remember the name. It's the only other VR game where I'm, I've looked at it and I'm said, yes, that would be amazing to have. It's uh, made by Google, and I'm trying to remember the name right now. Um, you talk about it, I'll look it up. Okay. Um, so it's a game where you draw. It, the only purpose of it is to draw. But the way you draw is really intuitive and really... Excuse me. I'm, I'm burping a lot today. Um, the way you draw is really impressive. You have this like palette in your left hand. It's like this virtual palette. And you're able to pick colors but like other animation things and you can draw in a 3d space around you so you're like surrounded by your own creation or you can draw in a 3d space in front of you and then you can view that object from all sides and you can do lighting effects you can um you can look into closer details and paint with it it's really amazing and that's the only it's quite expensive i think it was like 40 bucks maybe it's 30 bucks but i looked at that game and i'm like wow if i had a vr headset that's the first thing i would buy uh is that tilt brush tilt brush there we go yeah yeah i'm looking at it now it looks super impressive um yeah it's really cool it it's in itself it's just a really cool thing that i would love to have what i'd want to see from that kind of game is uh, the ability to export your 3D drawings as 3D models. Uh, so, like, you could work on it in Blender oh, or Maya, yeah, that kind of yeah. thing. Um, uh, I know you can share your 3D models with friends, but, yeah, I don't think the uh, 3D uh, print functionality is there yet. Yeah, I don't know. I think virtual reality and 3D printing kind of could work hand-in-hand. Hand. I think it's oh, a yeah, no really doubt. interesting exploration. No doubt. Um, yeah. Tiltbrush is actually only 20 bucks right now. Yeah um all right so um one last thing i have about vr is i feel like there's this big roadblock in price um i don't know a lot of people who are willing to shell up six hundred dollars for a vr headset but and that's only the beginning because you need a vr headset but then on top of that you need a good enough graphics card to play virtual reality and then you need a good enough processor inside that computer to compute all that Maybe some RAM. So you need a whole new setup, basically, unless you got yourself a really nice computer already. Um, and then on top of that, you got to buy these games, and then you have to put the... Um, oh, yeah, space is also a limiting factor because you have to put up all the sensors around you so that it can calibrate correctly. And sometimes you have to buy an extra sensor because I know with the Vive, it comes with two sensors, but they say if you, if you play with two sensors, it can get very buggy sometimes but if you play with three you're good to go but then sensor costs like 50 bucks i think so it's just that cost right now i feel is not consumer friendly yeah that's fair and i mean uh as a counterpoint most consoles these days cost around 400 dollars, at least when they come out new um but to be fair uh most consoles also boast uh exclusive games they boast their own processing power they don't depend on a different device to power the game itself 
Right. Whereas and, this is no. effectively like buying a fancy monitor. Yeah, yeah. But, um, and I don't want to get into whole consoles versus PC date. Uh, oh, yeah, let's that's, not. That's another time for another discussion. But um, it's just that, like, not even consoles are equipped to play these games. Like, um, you need some real horsepower inside a computer to play it. I think the cheapest graphics card you can use to play the computer is an RX 40 for, like, over 200 bucks and then you got to plop that in your own desktop build a new desktop around that that's what i'm saying it's just yeah. put that um, in a gtx perspective for me because i only really know nvidia uh gtx 1060 i believe you can play but then again that also costs over 200 dollars yeah these days oh wait wait try to remember if it's 1060 yeah 1060 can play not the 1050 um so yeah actually i'm gonna look that up as i'm talking but Sure. Um, for virtual reality, it's just I feel like it gets to this point where a lot of consumers are like, "Yeah, it's cool, but is should I should I use it? You know, is it is it worth it?" And I yeah, feel and like I think another on the same vein, there's another line of reasoning that comes with these are really cool things, but I don't really want to wear this clunky device on my yeah. head that obstructs my vision and like. Yeah. I don't know. Like get the, heavy after a couple day, uh, hours. It's like VR that tries to interact with the world, like Oculus Rift or Hololens, mm. is kind of a it's kind of a different thing. But it's you know it's augmented reality or virtual reality, and sure. even then people even when people can see like they're still just not interested in wearing a helmet for their entire life. You know. Right. Right. And I just looked up the 1060 can do virtual reality. I don't want to do some misinformation here on this podcast but yeah 1060 Respect. can do virtual reality but then again that that graphics card is you know 200 bucks so yeah um but so down the future do you see this as something that more people will pick up like because eventually graphics card prices will go down because like i imagine my kids will go through my computer someday and it's like oh my god my dad had a uh, the R9 Fury? That that <laughs> car can't even play 16K games. What a what a nerd. He's so he must have been poor or something. Um, I mean, sure. I don't think processing power is ever going to be a you know hard roadblock to what we can do with technology. Um, right. Although I mean, we will get cheaper. Yeah, sure. And I, I mean, we're going to develop more and more powerful processors, or we're going to be able to parallelize them more effectively. You know, all of that kind of thing. Uh, I don't think we're ever going to reach a point where we'll say, yep, this is as fast as a computer can go. We're never going to be able to do anything better than this. But Um, I think that what's really challenging here is the human-machine interface. Because you were talking about games where it's very intuitive, it's very immersive, and I think we're moving in the right direction there. But I feel like just wearing a helmet or having to pay a prohibitive cost for that kind of gear might always be a thing Mm -hmm. i'm i'm not entirely sure that virtual reality headsets are ever gonna drop significantly in price at least for the next 10 years just for the reason that they're unique it's not like you can make one yourself Mm -hmm. yeah definitely um so i feel like there's a couple of main factors once these factors are eliminated it'll be pretty mainstream first um virtual reality devices probably need to be a lot lighter 
uh, once they're a lot lighter, because I'm sure they will get lighter as we continue to develop things that are, uh, give the virtual reality um, uh, streaming devices more efficiency and more power. Um, so first, make it lighter. Um, second, probably uh, not make the space that you need to use virtual reality in so large, because like, I can't tell you where I would put a virtual reality device in my own house, because there's no place big enough for it. So get rid of that barrier. And also third, um, let's see where the gaming market goes in terms of virtual reality. Because um, I know, like, um, let's pull up 4K. 4K is easy to develop for. So, of course, everybody's getting 4K monitors these days. Sure. But virtual reality, you need, your, you need a whole... You need to put some whole separate um, coding in there in order to make virtual reality work. So we got to see where um, where that goes in the market. But I do feel someday um, it won't be that every consumer has it in his house, but it's like every consumer who wants to be a gamer is like a uh, gamer boy or whatever will definitely have it. So that's what I think I think the move towards virtual reality is very similar in a lot of ways to the, um, to the move from, you know, standard film to 3d filming uh and that you know it's a hard technology to master once you figure it out it's easy to mass produce and there's always going to be people that it just you know it gives them headaches yeah cool um so i think that that covers it for uh, virtual reality um moving on here peter you uh suggested this so i'm gonna let you talk about it first you want to talk about uh triple a gaming um, do you want to bring up your uh, topic? Yeah. Okay. So um, I have I have opinions. Um, so sorry to everybody or anybody listening. Everybody's but um, get offended, Peter. I uh, so I love Fallout. I love the environment that it presented. I love the story that it, that it follows. I love the characters in it or at least in the first few games, especially New Vegas. New Vegas was brilliant. But Fallout 4 was really disappointing to me, and that was that was true for a lot of reasons. Um, but I think that the problem with Fallout 4 and the problem with a lot of AAA games is that they're losing a lot of their character in order to gain the biggest audience. Um, the biggest audience being people who like first-person shooters that are extremely pretty and that you can explore. Um, now, Fallout 3 uh, tried to maintain a lot of the RPG elements from Fallout 1 and 2. You had your perks tree that was very rigid and very level-based. Um, you had a lot of things that you could do that were very detailed, like your small arms versus big guns perks your uh your science versus your intelligence there there were a lot of distinctions between them um and that resulted in the character that you built requiring a very specific set of tools um if you built a strength character you would need you know a minigun whereas if you were playing a sort of assassin character with a lot of agility and intelligence or charisma you would have to you know, lose your armor for the sake of uh, being more stealthy, that kind of thing. Um, and while that still is present in Fallout 4, I feel like it was sort of... Its its corners were rounded down a little bit. Yeah, um, I feel you, I feel you. It, 
so Fallout 1 punishes you if you have a bad build. Um, it's very difficult to succeed if you don't allocate your special perks right. If you if you pick weird perks, or if you pick perks that are specifically designed to challenge you, the game will be very difficult. Fallout 2 followed the same route. Uh, Fallout 3, it was more based on your you know Twitch reactions because that's just the nature of a first-person shooter. But a lot of challenges in the game were completely unsolvable if you didn't have a particular level of charisma or of intelligence or even of luck. Um, Fallout 4 is very, very forgiving. It basically says, look, if you can hold a gun and you can shoot, we'll, we'll take it. You can, you can get through the game. You can beat all the quests. If I may. Yeah. Um, I do feel that um, that level of easiness um, is actually a humongous trend that we're starting to see. But I feel that trend is more like because um, these moms are, you know, buying their games for the kids. Like, oh, here you go, Jimmy. Here, here's a triple here's A game. I know you're going to love it. And then the thing is, um, it's more easy for you to get upset at a game. Like little Jimmy here is like, oh, I'm, I'm so angry. I can't do this thing. And then they eventually just give up. But the thing is, they can give up and move to a newer game because there are the game market is uh, really full these days. There's a lot of games out there. Back then, like if you like, you were motivated to beat that level. You said, "I am not going to stop until I beat this level." Because I mean, what else am I going to do for the next uh, ten hours? I I got nothing else to play. So I feel that like games are getting a lot easier. Not only Fallout Four, because I will say Fallout Four was easy for the most part, um, but I feel like games are getting a lot easier as general because people are saying, oh, well, I can't beat this. I'll just move on to this game. Well, I, I think that, yeah, there is definitely a trend of games moving towards being easier and requiring a less specific skill set to succeed. I don't think that's because... Uh, that is to say, I don't think that game companies really gain much. Once you've bought the game, they have their money. Uh, and while there might be like DLC packages or something that they might be trying to get, it's really more about volume of purchase than it is about longevity of use. Um, that's the reason that pre-ordering is such a big thing. Uh, developers will say, this is what our game is. If it's a big franchise, they'll say it'll be just like the ones you loved. And they get as many people as they can to pre-order. And then once they've pre-ordered, they can't get the game back. Um, and so their goal is just to get as many people as possible to you know, click the buy button on Steam or go to GameStop or whatever. Just bring the game into their house and give the developer money. Um, and so I don't think that making the game easier is really going to benefit the developer. And so I don't really know why it's happening. That's fair. Well, I mean, uh, then again, there um, there are Steam refunds because I know. Um, oh yeah. Enter the Gungeon. Uh, I have yeah. Um, so I've heard a lot of people are actually uh, refunding that game because they're like, oh, this game is just bullet hell. Like, I can't, I mean, it is bullet hell, but like, it's like super maxed out. But then they're like, I can't even beat the first level of this game. I'm, I'm just going to refund my purchase because I, I can't do anything. So, I mean, in those cases, there are instances, but I do agree with you that it is a growing trend and I don't think it's attributed to just one cause though. I, I do have to agree with you on that point. I don't think it's attributed to that cause I made specifically. Um, but it's a question of, 
because I remember I play um, older games like um, what was it? I'm playing. Uh, I was playing that Star Wars game where where you ride the pod racer for Nintendo uh, sixty four. Oh, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's this pod racer game for Nintendo sixty four. I was playing that um, a while back, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, it's going so fast. Like, this is this is definitely not Mario Kart style. This is like F Zero style. Yeah, so, and I mean. If you're looking for old games that are super difficult, we could just talk about Battletoads. Um, oh yeah, that's true. So, um, yeah, I do, I do agree. It is a growing trend, and I don't, I don't think it's, uh, it's I don't think it's something that I want the market to follow because I want my games to be hard. But anyways, um, continuing on with uh, Fallout Four. <laughs> sure. Sorry about that. Um, so I don't know with Fallout Four it kind of loses a lot of the character of the Fallout franchise just because it's becoming more of an FPS than an RPG. Right. I mean, they took out gun repair. Yeah. Like, gun repair is a huge element of Fallout 4. It's the only thing that really shows to you that things are scarce in the game, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're just sort of chilling. Everything's fine. Right. Um, Um, Yeah, I, I do have to agree with you on that because... We were so like I'm I'm a graphics guy and, and you're you're like the uh, uh, story and writing guy, right? Sure, yeah. Uh, I mean, you're born also into like uh, mechanics and controlling and gameplay. Um, yeah, as long as I can enjoy a game, I don't really care how it looks. I guess. Right. Um, I'm kind of a big graphics guy myself. Like I I love my R9 Fury with with all my heart. Um, that beast is a monster and so like i push a thing really hard sometimes because i just want to get all the good graphics i can all the all the fps i can out of that thing and so it's becoming more of an issue of like developers are starting to realize people like me are like oh we need we need these uh 4k textures and these uh we we need anti-aliasing buffed all the way up and so they're like well, okay, we'll we'll do that. We'll we'll put our money all our money into that, and then they just don't focus on the writing at all. And I think that's mostly your concern, right? Yeah, um, and I think that kind of comes back to the fact that the really important thing is that a developer sells a copy of their game. And I mean, Steam refunds kind of flips this whole thing on its head. But uh, and I I'm really happy for that because I think it it forces developers to at the very least make the first two hour, hours of their game extremely good. Um, but uh, and that's the whole thing, is the best way to sell a game is to show that it looks really pretty. Because that's the thing that's easiest to show in a demo video. Um, you can't show how it feels to play a game. You can only show what it looks like to play a game. Oh, my sky! <laughs> True. Um, and so I, I think that's the reason that the trend is moving so far towards graphics instead of storytelling, writing, difficulty, uh, depth of mechanics, that kind of thing is because, you know, good graphics sell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there was, um, just a YouTube channel out there called Crowcat. He basically like, he does a lot of exposure videos for like saying, ah, this company said this and they did this or whatever. Um, but he did one on no man's sky. And there was, uh, an interview. This guy was, uh, doing, I don't know what it was an interview, it was like a discussion, and 
there were four people in the discussion, and there was one guy, only one guy in the discussion, who was skeptical of the No Man's Sky. And all the guys were laughing at him, but he was giving some strong points. Like, he said, okay, they've shown us how pretty it is, but they haven't shown us what we're doing. What are we doing inside this game? And everybody's, like, laughing and saying, ah, oh, you can do anything you want, man. But that's the problem. Um, a lot of these developers are also pushing this uh, open world game at us. Like, that's all. That's most of what I hear these days. Oh, open world this, open world that. Oh, Watch Dogs 2 is open world. Um, the Witcher 3 is open world. And it's a question of, like, what are you doing inside this world that makes it so interesting that you want to explore more of this world? Because let's compare um, The Witcher 3 and No Man's Sky. In No Man's Sky, all you do is you fly your ship around one planet. You might shoot your lasers at a couple thingies, get back in your ship, and go to another planet. And then sometimes you go like, ooh, this is a pretty planet. And then you'll stay on that planet for a while and keep shooting stuff, and then you'll leave. With uh, The Witcher 3, it, it's still a beautiful game. But the thing I like about The Witcher 3 is that not only is it a beautiful game, but there are so many quests, there are so many side quests, and there's so much to do. The mechanics work perfectly. The uh, gameplay is intuitive and easy to learn, pick up. But it's not only easy to pick up, it's very hard. It's, it's not very forgiving. And I feel like I want more games like that. More games that don't just say, oh, we're open world, look at us. Like, you can do anything you want. The imagine your imagination is the only roadblock. I want more games that say, "Hey, these are the things you can do inside our world," because or else why don't I just go outside and enjoy my world? Yeah, and on top of that, uh, Witcher Three is a fantastic example of a game that really gives their characters character. Um, everyone oh, in that yes, game that definitely. you talk to has what? I, I'm disagreeing with you. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, uh, everyone in that game that you talk to has motivations. Everyone has needs. Uh, whether it's some guy that's asking you to, you know, fight a ghost because his daughter is sick. Long story. Or, you know, your love interest who's like, hey, you cheated on me and you're, I don't I don't like you, so go do things. I don't know. Uh, I have, For the record, I haven't played too much of the game. So if I sound like an idiot, it's because I am. Um, now you're getting it right, though. You're getting it right. Yeah, but I, I mean that... That's what I love about it, is they invest in writing good characters, they invest in making interesting quests that are unique within the game, and, you know, they make it fun to do, and they make it challenging. And it's just, you know, it's a really good time. But, you know, Fallout 4, you get, wow, this is a beautiful place, this is a cool wasteland, and it's a cool environment. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess I'm going to play The Sims, or, you know, defend a settlement, because that's pretty much all you can do in game. Right, right, and I've I haven't beaten The Witcher Three either, but I've heard the end game is really good, and the DLC is fantastic. So I can't wait for that. Yeah, and um, I mean the fact that it just takes that long to get to the end game is, you know, even better. Oh yeah, um, I mean personally, I'm stuck at this one part, but that that's another story on itself. It's just um, there that Witcher Three game is probably the best example of a game that going back to your point not only focuses on graphical prowess because that game is pretty but also focuses on the writing aspect and the character development and the mechanisms inside the game that actually make it work 
difficulty levels. It's just an overall fantastic game. If we're doing game of the year rewards right now, I'll, I'll gladly <laughs> give it my uh, game of the year. Yeah, Thumbs that's up. fair. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So I feel like the industry should be moving towards those kinds of games where if you have an exploration aspect, that's cool, but let me try to move towards something I want to explore. Yeah, and on top of that, make it so that there's things in the games that will actually motivate the player. Mm-hmm. Don't just be like, hey, that's pretty. Be like, hey, this is... I don't know. It's hard to write characters that you have to care about, but that's why people get paid to do yeah. it. Exactly. Um, but, yeah, so... Um, that's uh, AAA gaming for that sector. Um, do we want to move on to coding? Uh yeah sure why not what do we got all right so today we're going to be talking about uh two little topics here um one of them is uh just a little debate between peter and i because we have different opinions on it and then another thing is uh something we're preparing for and we are going to probably be sharing our own experiences that you guys might have too um so the first thing we're going to be talking about is ides versus text-based uh development environments well, I should say IDE stands for... Wait, what? Integrated e Development for... Environment. Okay, okay, I knew that E. Okay, Integrated Development Environment. I got you. Thank you. Um, so, we're going to be talking about some pros and cons. And then, uh, yeah, afterwards, we're going to be talking about hackathons, preparations, what kind of project is good, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, first off, do you want to start it off with uh, IDEs versus text-based environment, Peter? Uh, sure. Well... For starters, uh, Griffin prefers to use, you know, extensive IDEs, Visual Studio, that kind of thing. And I'm more of a, you know, program and console kind of person. Um, And personally, I feel like both are kind of valid. um, But it's really annoying for me to use an IDE when I don't already know the language really well. Um, I feel like TechSpace is the best way to learn how to write in the language. And once you understand what the IDE is doing to that language it's, you know, it's a little bit better. Um, But the reason for that is because IDEs do a lot of stuff behind the scenes. Um, And you can kind of tell immediately that I'm really a C++ kind of programmer, not a Python kind of programmer, Um, because that kind of thing really bothers me. Um, I really like to be able to know, like, if I really wanted to, I would like to be able to say, cool, what's my address of this particular integer in this particular array at any given time. Uh, I like to be able to do that just because I like to debug my stuff extensively and because, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons for it. Um, and I feel like TechSpace is great for that because it forces you to actually actively control exactly what your code is doing at any given time. Uh, whereas I feel like an IDE kind of gives you a lot of shortcuts and kind of saves you from having to really understand exactly everything that you're doing. All right. Um, so I do agree that a text-based environment does give you the ability to learn language a lot more. For example, like um, when I was starting out with uh, Visual Basic back in the high school days, um, I would be typing my code into Visual Basic and be running and I'd be like, ah, yeah, this is a piece of cake. But that's because I was hitting tab a lot. Um, that was like my favorite key back in the days. And then when I got the test and I like write your code, I'm like, uh, what, what did I tab again? Like, I, I just want to write down like 
PRO and then hit tab. And then I want to try to write down tab for program, you know, so <laughs> get out of the way because uh, it does it for you. Um, but I'm, I'm a very big IDE guy. Like if you look at um, my Sublime Text uh, Editor, it's loaded with plugins. I got plugins for like HTML and CSS. I got uh, linters. I got all sorts of things working for me. And um, I, I do recommend like uh, probably spending a time in Notepad, maybe trying to learn the code. But thing is, well, Notepad like... might be going a little far. Their formatting is pretty atrocious. Wait, what? <laughs> Sorry. Continue. Oh, um, but for me personally. Um, my life would be so much harder without IDEs. Um, so I do a lot of web development and like to get started, all I have to do is hit an exclamation point and I hit tab and it does all my, uh, document type, uh, writing for me. It just sets everything up right away. It's like super simple. And like, same thing for visual studio. Like, um, I, I use a program called resharper. Um, I get a free as a student and what I do is I just type in, so you, I don't know how many people here know C plus plus. Did I say C sharp? I meant C plus plus. I'm so, sure it works for C sharp too. I don't know how many people here know C plus plus on a show, but basically with C plus plus is you have a .h file and you have a .cpp file, and in order to you for you to make like a method inside a class or something, you have to go to your .h file and then you have to type in the um, the name of your uh, method and .h file and then you have to go to your cpp file and then you have to type in the same you know method name and then you can start writing your code and the reason for that is that the .h file acts like an act sort of like an outline for the cpp file right um it helps to debug it right that's it helps a lot of things it helps memory allocation oh yeah that too um so um but the thing is about my uh what my program does what resharper does itself is you just type in the name of the method and then you just hit like control enter and not only just puts it in there, put in the .h file, but puts in the .cpp file. So it really increases the productivity of whatever you're doing. So um, if I had to say a pro for IDE, I would say, yes, it does really increase the productivity. Like my, my development environments make it so that I can easily uh, get a website out there and be able to like customize it super fast, um, super efficient. But I do agree with you with the IDE doesn't really help with um, beginners trying to learn the language because um, you can you can just type in all these methods and um, like from in my case you could say oh I didn't know I had to put the dot cpp uh i didn't know how to put the method inside this dot cpp i thought it would do it for me so i do agree that that is a con for ide that doesn't really help with beginners yeah i think a major part of the ide problem is that if you change ides or if you lose access to an ide um you're basically dead in the water because your ide was taking care of a bunch of things for you and you know like you said there's just particulars about a given language that you're going to forget if you're not ever doing it. Um, I mean, honestly, like pretty much every time I write a file in C++, I end up bringing up a copy of a similar file in a different screen just to compare against to make sure that I'm writing it correctly. Um, but and, and so in that case, like IDs are great because I could just say, hey, make a class. 
and then just leave it at that and that would be you know super easy but if i ever had to go back to text editors i don't think i could um and so yeah i think definitely ids help you be super efficient uh they'll help you get code out faster and if you're going to be in the same place for a long time using uh, on a you know the same project working for the same person uh i think an ide is totally reasonable to use especially if your coworkers are using it too um but in my case where i kind of jump from projects you know every few months and i kind of change up the language i'm using or i change up the development environment i'm using or just the libraries that i have to use um for me it's really helpful to just keep it basic uh keep it clean and you know just work in text yeah yeah um and then like another thing i like is uh i know you're going to disagree with this um <laughs> but uh debugging inside of ides for me is um is a wonderful experience i i know you don't really like it that well because he, he, he didn't you say like it kind of just like helps you along it's it's a little bit of a pain but you know i can respect it yeah um debugging inside of ides for me is just like i feel it's probably one of the reasons why ides are even developed in the first place because like there's so much you can do inside of it you can you can set up a, a breakpoint but then you can move from there you can set up like uh, a watch for a variable to make sure if it changed or not you can uh, scroll over some code and make sure like did it enter this loop like it was supposed to or did it not enter it it's just a really wonderful experience to just be able to run through this program through a debugger instead of having to execute the program and then like put out like a bunch of print lines that says oh the value of this was two on this loop the value of this was three on this loop and you have to like look through it all and say uh, yes there's a problem um because I remember um, in a couple of projects I had to do for my uh, algorithms class, um, some of the programs failed um, using the um, uh, C++ compiler that our uh, teacher had us use for the general server at ASU. And I had to walk through that, but I had to do like a bunch of print line statements, and that was just a pain in the butt. And I'm like, where's my IDE when I need it? Uh, actually, that kind of leads me into another interesting point. Which is, um, I actually helped you debug that bit, if I recall yeah. correctly. Yeah, you, you and helped me quite a bit on this stuff. The reason that it didn't work in the general server, the you know G++ uh, compiler, when it did work in Visual Studio, is because what Visual Studio does is it pre-allocates all memory to zero instead of just leaving it as a jumbled yeah. mess. Um, which is kind of a, a cop-out for properly managing your memory. Because, you know, if you initialize something and you don't actually set it equal to anything, it's just automatically null. Um, and so what ended up happening was uh, Griffin had forgotten to set a, I think it was a header of a linked list or something, yep. to null. And yeah. so every time, it, every time it tried to traverse that, or like half the time it tried to traverse it, it succeeded. Um, but didn't go anywhere because it was just reading null. And half the time it crashed because it was reading, you know, a jumbled mess of... Yeah, that was annoying. Bits. Uh, and so I think that kind of feeds back into the you know IDEs that give you a lot of shortcuts, and they sort of paint over a few of your mistakes. But the result is that you don't learn from them uh, unless you you know compile it in another place as well and cross-reference. Yeah, and this is another off-top from debate, but uh, what uh, Visual Studio likes to do is it likes to include this stdafx file at the top oh, yeah. of every page 
I I have no idea what it does. I I, I don't know if I looked it up yet or not. Um, Let me look it, it up. You keep talking. Okay, I was gonna say if one reviewers want to look it up and uh, find out what it did, but yeah, it's it's it like so like every single time I submit a file to um, the general server, I had to go through and delete this STDFX thing at the top of every of my uh, CPP files because. Well, I didn't include it because it doesn't exist. So um, it just became, it, it was a hassle really near the end. So yeah, I do agree. It does give you a lot of, it, it gives you a lot of leeway on stuff and sometimes it includes things you don't want to include. But um, I just feel like for me personally, the debugging and the efficiency, the amount of productivity I could get out of an IDE is worth the, uh, the hassle for me. Okay, so it looks like uh, stdfx.h yep. is sort of a means to compile headers more quickly or compile C++ files more quickly. Uh, I'll have to read more into it, but it's kind of just a trick to make your compilation go quicker. Yeah, studio worked there. All yeah, right. there you go. Um, um, yeah, that's that's all I really have to say on the matter. Um, that's all I'd say on the matter. Wait, didn't you want me to tell a, a joke earlier? That no. Oh my yeah. god! If if you want to, you can. No, I can't remember the joke. I was like, knock. It knock. was a really crappy knock knock joke. Who's there? And I said Christmas, and I said like Christmas. You said like Christmas. And I said like Christmas is knocking on your door because blah blah blah. And then you just burst out laughing. Oh dear. I I totally for. <laughs> is that what I said? I think it was something like that. Yeah. Just don't ask me knock knock jokes on this spot. This is the top quality humor that you've signed up for by listening to yeah, this podcast. All I can do is like go on the joke subreddit and like pull up a couple jokes that might make people laugh. But yeah, I can't do stand up for squat. Hmm. All right, so we got a couple minutes left. Um, yeah. Because I want to cut this out like an hour. Um, so we're gonna for our last discussion, and. And we can talk about other stuff after this, but for our last little main topic... No, this is the last time we'll ever talk. (laughs) The last time we'll ever talk again. See ya. RIP conversation. Uh, um, We wanted to uh, touch on hackathons. Uh, Peter and I are going to be attending Hack Arizona with uh, two of our friends, and we uh, we want to talk about uh, how we should prepare for a hackathon, what kind of project is good for these hackathons, and... um, and I feel like it's probably a useful thing to talk about right now since yeah. we kind of get in these mindsets. Um, now, it's probably not useful if you've been to hackathons before to take hackathon advice from us because we've never been to a hackathon either of us. But uh, um, maybe you can be nice and help us out with advice. Right. You know. uh, we'd love to hear about your experiences with hackathons or projects that you'd like to work on. So, you know, yeah. hit us up. Uh, yeah, definitely send us that kind of stuff. So, um uh, let's see, and we'll we'll be talking about where you can uh, send us stuff uh, at the end of the episode. So, um, so we did a little bit of research on uh, hackathons themselves, and uh, we were looking how you should prepare. So personally, I feel like um, preparations should be made based on the type of hackathon it is. Um, I know uh, some hackathons run for like maybe. Some run for like maybe eight hours, then they go up to like 24 hours. Ours is like a 36 hour one. I think the most I've ever heard of Hackathon being is like 48 hours. Pretty sure Hackazy is 48. I thought it was like 36. I thought it was said on the website. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Either way, it's long. It's, 
it can be very short or it can be very long. Um, and so I'm guessing preparation should be made to that. So before you go to a hackathon, I suggest looking up at the site, seeing, well, first of all, you need to know where it is, when it is. Um, but then you also see what will be provided to you. Um, I know a lot of hackathons um, have their own supplies of little goodies that you can use. Um, some have like their own virtual reality uh, devices that you can use to um, work with, develop with. Some have drones. Um, some uh, just a bunch of uh, little yeah. tip, uh, little. You know your Arduino's, your robotics kits, that kind of thing. Right. Um, and usually these are sponsored. Well, hackathons are sponsored by uh, corporations, but usually the people providing these devices that you can develop with are actual corporations. Yeah, and so TLDR, are, uh, if you go to a hackathon, you're giving into becoming the man. Just, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, and the cool part is, if you're, I, um, again, don't take advice from me, but um, if you develop a really awesome application using someone's virtual reality device, let's say Microsoft's there and they bring their HoloLens, and you develop something pretty sick with HoloLens, you may be like, hey, this, these guys are pretty good with HoloLens. Uh, we should probably hit them up. So... That's another cool thing about hackathons. Um, the job opportunities there are pretty tremendous, and it's a pretty good thing to put on your resume. Um, so preparations, look at the site, see what they provide um, in terms of devices. Also, um, some hackathons, I know ours provide food. If yours does, you might want to get some food. Um, that's it's also really huh? It's also really important to uh, make sure that you're allowed to actually do your project prep. Because um, some hackathons uh, will actually just give you a problem to solve when you get there, and some are more open. Uh, I believe HackAZ is more open. Uh, we're allowed to like bring in a project, we're just not allowed to work on it. Um, right. So it's really important to you know clarify that before you show up with you know a half-written piece of code that you're going to get disqualified for using. Right, right. Um, yeah, you definitely want to... Um... Make sure you're not uh, going ahead of the line there. And um, all, all we've heard about HackAZ is from a re our friend Aritro who says that it's pretty open. So um, just make sure, like, if you know someone who's been there before, it's also really helpful to talk to them to prepare for it because, um, you know, they're, they're a good guy. Um, it's also helpful preparations get a team together as soon as you can. Because I've heard getting a team set up at a hackathon is a significantly harder experience than just going to an organ your school organization or going to a group of friends and saying, hey, uh, you guys want to team up? And the sooner you can set up a team, the better. Because when you're like at the bus and you're running around saying, hey, who wants to be on the team with me? Who wants to be on the team with me? Um, I'm sure... Uh, the majority of people on that bus already have teams so get prepared on that and you just want to make sure that you're ready to go um, in the morning and I know a lot of people ask about sleeping bags let's be honest you're not gonna sleep this is accurate uh, uh, yeah. on top of that though um, when you're picking a team it's a really good opportunity to you know get a chance to get to know some people better that you haven't really talked to but you kind of know are chill so, like a retro, I'm a friend of his, uh, but we don't really hang out much. And so, a hackathon's a really good chance for us to not only work on a cool project, but, you know, just hang out. 
Um, and if you don't know anyone who's been to a hackathon before, don't be afraid to you know shoot an email to whoever's hosting it because you know, they know more about it than anybody else. So if you got questions and nobody knows the answer, uh, don't be afraid to actually ask the people that know. Mm. Exactly. Um, and second off, what kind of project is good? Do you have any idea, Peter? Uh, all of the ones that are mine. <laughs> yeah, I wish I are hackathon. Um, um per- oh, you want to go first? Yeah, yeah go I actually do have a real answer. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I thought you were just um, gonna say that. So, uh, for Hacker Arizona, there's actually a lot of you know categorical opportunities that they present. There's you know your drone development, your mobile development, your website development, that kind of thing. Um, and so, the way that's presented, it's kind of they're basically telling you anything that does something cool with this is a good idea. Um, now with a more closed competition, it's going to be a little bit different. They're going to be wanting you to solve a specific problem using whatever you can find, or, you know, even a specific piece of hardware that they want you to use or software. Um, so a good hackathon project depends on the kind of hackathon that you're doing, but we're for this uh, argument or for the sake of argument, we're going to pretend that all hackathons are just very open you come in with a project, and you come and do it, and people judge you for it. So on that note, I think that a good hackathon project integrates one or more types of technology, uh, or two or more types of technologies, rather, um, to create a really cool interaction between them that is that enables the user to do something that they just couldn't do before. Right. Um, so like one example of that, the, my, my idea for a project and for the record, we haven't decided the project yet, yeah, um, we'll get to that later. is, uh, a drone control app. Um, now you may be saying, yeah, okay. Those already exist. Parrot has one. Sure. If you like drones, if you don't, then I don't know. You can ignore me. Um, but don't cause drones are cool. Uh, my idea is to create an app that I would call trickster. Uh, where a user can draw a pattern on their phone and our program will translate it into, well, first into a mathematical function or a mathematical set of curves and then be able to translate those sets of curves into rotor operations. So basically telling the the quadcopter or the drone that we're working with how fast each rotor should spin at any given time to do the flips or the turns or the rotations that we're asking it to do. Um, and now obviously that's a super math heavy thing. You'd probably want to do some preparation in advance for something that intense. But I think that that offers a really interesting idea for an interaction between mobile tech and drone tech that makes drones more user accessible and makes them more interesting. So yeah. I think that's a good idea for a project. Yeah. Um, I definitely agree with you on all points there. You should, in a hackathon, you should focus on using technologies that not a lot of people are going to be building with. Because, like, um, any, if you're going to do a website for a hackathon, you might as well just drop that idea right now because anyone can create a website. It's not that hard. But if you do something like a drone or something, something that, or, or if you use one of the, the sponsor's devices, virtual reality or something like that, you can create... Um, you can create these experiences for people that they don't that not the developers haven't created yet. You get to 
build your project with a group of people. Granted, it's with a limited number of hours and there might be stress, you don't have all the time to work on it, but it might lead to your next uh, great project. Some like you might be doing this um, drone application that Peter is suggesting. Don't, don't though, that's that's our idea. So yeah, that's my idea. If there's, if there's any hack area AZ people listening to this podcast, uh, <laughs> think you think your own thing. But if you're doing this drone program, you might get really invested and say, wow, I wonder what else we can do with this. And then maybe you can ship it off as a product or something. So Spoilers, the answer is anything you want, because drones are cool. It, yeah, there's, there's a lot of applications, honestly, for drones these days. Um, so just get a project out there, uh, get, get thinking. Um, but you want to cr- also stay sensible. You don't want to say, oh, I'm going to create the next Facebook. Here we go, team, because there's actually... Um, I do Twitters. Uh, surprise, surprise. There's actually a good joke I saw. Do you know what Babel is, Peter? Uh, what, like the translation app? No, it's a different thing. Uh, Babel is a uh, JavaScript compiler for uh, those people who don't know. Um, and so there's this uh, joke that's like, hey, how'd your hackathon go? And then some guy says, not too bad. We got Babel set up. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you don't want to... Um, also use uh, programming languages that you aren't familiar with. You want to have some familiarity in this field. Granted, this is supposed to challenge you, so you're not going to have total familiarity, but you can't just say, oh, I'm going to build an Android app, but never have touched Java in your life. Or whatever yeah, The goal use. isn't to force you to learn a language in the span of 36 hours, because the learning that you're going to do in that span is going to be hurried, specific, and not really helpful in the future. The goal is to take your basic skills that you know and apply them in a way that you never have before. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, in, in a sense, that's that's why you want to be focusing on hackathons. Um, I, 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 think, uh, I think Peter really nailed it on the spot, though. I do what I can. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, that... Uh, that about wraps up our uh, first episode of uh, Cranky Coders. Oh man, um, I didn't even explode. So Peter and I used to have a um, a gaming channel called Team Thirty Nine, where we did gaming things, and that was a good run. Um, but another thing I want to bring back from that is uh, remember we did a uh, tip of the day. Oh yeah, tip of the day. Yeah, or so be tip of the podcast, tip of the episode. Cause, sure. Uh, we yeah. Do this every day, so. Um. Uh, do you have a tip, or do you want me to go first? Because I, I have a tip already. Oh uh, yeah, go for it. All right. So uh, my tip of the day is uh, do a lot of networking. Um, if you don't have a job yet, or you're looking for some work, uh, networking it will be really useful. If you don't have a LinkedIn account by now, you should really get set up one set up because not having a LinkedIn account in 2016 as a uh, developer or as a student or as someone who's looking for an opportunity to work is just digging your own grave. So get a LinkedIn, excuse me, I'm burping a lot today. I don't know what's up. Gross. Um, so get a LinkedIn account, but also get the LinkedIn mobile device. So like instead of playing Angry Birds or whatever, you can just go on LinkedIn mobile and just like check out what people are writing. I got a lot of these tips from uh, this podcast I'm starting to listen to. Uh, learn to code with me and um 
and I, I'll put I'll put the episode in the show notes, but they do a good job going over like what you should be looking for in terms of networking. So connect with people um, connect with people that you're not not only just people you know, but people who you're familiar with. Um, and then also and then from there branch out. And instead of sending like the little click the invite button, um, create a personalized message saying like, Hi, I'm Griffin. I, I know you from this and this and I want to connect with you. Like just create that connection so that they don't look at their phone and say, Who is this nerd? So just do that and then from there branch out if um, and then also help others branch out too. So if like, you know, if you know someone's looking for a job at your place, I mean, if someone's looking for a job at your friend's place, then just reach out to your friend. Say, hey, my friend's looking for work here. And then just help help brother out. And then just, you know, that will also help you as well. So just, um, just try to get more into networking if you're looking for jobs. I'm trying to look for a job and I gotta say networking is really starting to help because I'm starting to get a lot more connections on LinkedIn and I'm starting to see a lot more opportunities. So that's my tip of the day. Network on uh, LinkedIn and uh, get out there. Totally. Uh, okay. My tip of the day is, um, well, uh, try not to be condescending because it spoils everyone's fun and looking down on people all day will give you scoliosis in the end. That's all. Have a good night, everybody. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, yeah. Have a good night day whatever if you're listening to this in a car please drive safe um and um happy uh, happy new year's happy new year's actually yeah this this will be the uh first episode of 2017 we're going to be breaking the new year with this episode you know so. what pop some bottles or if you're not of age drink some martinelli's they, they could have like soda bottles though yeah pop pop yeah. some soda pop, bottles pop all the bottles and uh until next if you find time, a bottle pop it that's my tip of the day find a bottle <laughs> oh my god uh all right so yeah um that wraps wraps it up for episode one and until next time i'm griffin i'm peter and this has been cranky coders thanks Bye-bye. for listening thank you for listening if you really like this episode of the Cranky Coders podcast, please give us a high rating on whatever podcast and platform you're using. And if you, again, if you have any questions, comments, feedback, we're going to take them. And it'll be over at crankycoders at gmail.com. Please subscribe so you can stay tuned till the next episode. Thank you for listening.